You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. That's a couple of interesting stories. I, I think we could have a good discussion about I'd just like to raise a couple of um, issues. I issues? Issues. I mean, well, not like issues. Like California issues? issues? No. Some of those processing sessions? I, uh, David said to me, uh, he said, you know, it's interesting because those two stories couldn't be more different, yet in certain ways they're alike. And I just kind of wanted to raise that. as uh, I have some ideas of how they're alike, but I thought other people as they get to it might want to uh, throw in some of their ideas. Um, it's there's a, you know I would almost say there's a one of the similarities I found in both the stories that I liked about them was that they both uh, were a lot about control, control of tone and diction and stuff because they both were centered. I would say this is my professorial bent, but I would say that they weren't even though they both had a plot. They weren't about the plot. They were about the conceit, and the conceit was never directly stated, or sometimes it was overly directly stated. But it was always the the conceit was con contained in the the um, kind of the tone and the voice of the story. Which in both stories, I thought what I liked about them and what I like about science fiction in general, when it's good, is the control that goes into it. So um, I just wanted. To why, why are you laughing? Is that, is that a question? <laughs> no, they're laughing at me. They're laughing at me, going, "I've got to keep control." <laughs> All right. Well, let me ask you about that. Let me ask you, David, about that story. Where'd that come from? Wow. Um, Charlie is me. Um, I mean, I mean, the whole thing about I'm trying to be serious and everybody's just laughing at me. I mean, that is that is just so me. Um, and. <laughs> I, you know, I, I, do, I, there we go again. I have, I see, I mean, see, see, they're doing it. <laughs> that, that I have, I have been, I was brought up in a joke, t in a joke telling, storytelling family. Uh, we always say, you know, in some families it's important to be brave, in some families it's important to be smart, in my family it's important to be funny. And so I have the joke telling diction. There is a way of making any statement come out with the rhythm of a joke. You can say something like, why, yesterday I had 17 matches. And people, <laughs> see? I mean, that wasn't <laughs> funny, people. But, but there, is a way, there is a way of saying things that makes them jokes. And it is really tough for me to not do that. And I have spent a lot of my writing energy taking that kind of stuff and ironing it out of stories that are supposed to be not funny. And so, you know, this, the, the funny thing just comes so easily to me that I will often start start doing you know doing things to make people laugh in tense dramatic situations when really what we need to do is is actually have the thing out and get through it um, and uh, yeah yes yes we have yes our yes yes we have we have um, uh, uh, um, back, uh, 
Kevin back there mentioned mentioned we're having our bathroom redone, and I blogged about it. I said we had a home invasion. Strangers came in. They came in the front door with a crowbar, and and they they took they took our tub. They took our sink. All they left was the toilet. And 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 well, I mean, you know, that's what having your bathroom redone feels like. <laughs> but um, but yeah, but that's the thing is 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 finding the humor in things is what I do. And so, um, Charlie is actually based on a character from a Dutch comic book. Um, the the character's name is Bucky, and I thought he was a giraffe, but actually he's a goat. And there's this one <laughs> point, there's this one point where he turns to the readers, and he's he's explaining that, that he, uh, he works in a restaurant, and and he's explaining that that you gotta have really good toothpicks if you're going to have a really high class restaurant. And he actually takes an entire tree and a lathe and 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 makes one toothpick out of out of a tree to because that's how much he cares about his restaurant and this is the only point in the entire comic book that of of the of all the issues that I've read where he addresses the readers directly and I'm thinking if if his if his friend the rat could see him doing this he'd think he was crazy oh. and you know he is crazy mm -hmm. but not in that way and and so those two things kind of came together and that's where this story came from that's good that's cool that makes sense. Let me add, uh, Nick, <laughs> just so we get everybody in this, can you say a couple of words about your story, particularly the carver? Uh, is that, I didn't recognize any particular stories, but I recognize a voice in that. How do you? Well, there's a lot of it was what you talk about when you talk about love, <laughs> actually. Okay. Yes. All right. right. So what, it's, I forgot, I've read that story. Well, like many carver stories, it's people standing, sitting around drinking. Right. That's pretty much the Carver story, That's isn't it? Yeah, it's a <laughs> <laughs> okay. So it's the teachers, exactly the teachers' whiskey. Okay. Yes, and, uh, All right, and and sort of the and talking about love and the what love and is and is not, okay. and having that uh, you just have three people. Often there are two people and one in, one intrudes, and that's a very uh, common thing in Carver too. Oh, all right. Yeah, all right. Yes. Well, cool. Gordon Lish actually did all of that. He Carver had tons of characters, and this would always cut it down to three characters. I don't. Know, what do you and, think and of that? I'm fine with it. I, no, I, I mean, the Lish, the, the <laughs> whole, people know what this is. People have heard this controversy, right? Gordon Lish edited heavily all of Carver's stories and basically made him into the... The minimalist uh, he yeah. is, yes. Yeah. If only he had done that to Heinlein. Yes. <laughs> well, yeah, that would have been. <laughs> and I think, I think what, the two, what the two stories have in common is that each of them, I think each of them works on its own. But the more you know about the source material, the 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 more you can appreciate it. Yeah. Except right. that it, you know, in in Nick's case, it's based on Raymond Carver and H.P. Uh, Lovecraft, and in my case, it's based on funny animal comic books, right. Right. which which I think leads to a slightly broader potential audience. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> yeah, as it turns out, when you make H.P. Lovecraft versus Kerouac or that kind of thing, you don't get people who like either one of them. You only get the ones who like both. Ah. <laughs> so I was very disappointing, as it turned out. Yeah. So you're sort of shooting <laughs> yourself in the foot, right? Yes. <laughs> That's interesting. All right. You well, got you got Lovecraft in my carver. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You got tentacles in my no. In uh. my whiskey. Well, I was the one thing I thought uh, about your story, David, was the not only the dialogue. I mean, a lot of that you did yourself, but the way. People, people always. He did it all himself, move. I think. <laughs> I did it myself. Gordon Lish <laughs> helped him out with uh, the giraffe. No, part. but it it it. it the the reason for me the the control to me and the way the story worked was not so much as in the the balloons and the uh, the surprise beams Those and the stuff, little lines, yeah. but the way people actually moved, like when they're pacing, you know, they can only go two steps and then two back, and all it looked like a cartoon, yeah, you mm -hmm. know, and if it hadn't looked like a cartoon, 
it would it would not have been the story it was. It had it, it wasn't just in the situation and the characters and the dialogue. It it was a lot in the movement, and I think yeah. that that was very well done. Yeah, I'd like to do a lot of stuff. I I use when I think about writing, I use a lot of theatrical terminology. I think about blocking and props, um, and and um, and acts. But but mostly, I, I I do I do a lot with props. You know that that you have to have you have to have the teapot or the or the whiskey bottle or what have you for people to play with to express their emotions, um, and and the same and and you use you use the the stage directions, um, the the blocking and how the lines are delivered and stuff like that in order to convey emotion. The words themselves, the words of the dialogue, only tell you what the character is trying to say. But their actions and the way they interact with the props and the sets tell you what they're trying not to say. Wow, true. too profound. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's uh, uh, you know I agree, but that that's true of every story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what was true every decent story worth reading anyway? Yes. Yeah, speculative yeah. fiction. We're talking oh, about speculative. Fiction. speculative. Yeah. Uh, so you know what? In in that one, uh, they they had a particular character. Uh, things things. Didn't move. They, none of them moved like people. They all moved like cartoon characters, and that was uh, that's what I liked about it. Yeah, yeah you know. Uh, that. Now, um, I don't know if you'd call it a genre. It it does seem to me while we're on this story that that there is, you know, I'm thinking of. You want my microphone? No, I'm thinking. Sure. In a way, I mean, immediately you think of the Matrix, right? Only this is the cartoon version. Did anybody else immediately think of the Matrix? Did that happen to anybody else here? No, it's just just you, Terry. Really? Just you. No, but you think stories (laughs) that are, the word is solipsistic. I think you've used it, right? That word probably appears in there somewhere. Yeah, yeah, in the uh, rhinoceros. You know, or, or the, I mean, people, other, what other stories did people think about when, it's a philosophical question. Are we really here, or are we just here because we're being observed? It's it's the anthropic principle in a way. Is mm-hmm. the universe here? Yeah. You know, it's it's. Uh, well, and and the question of the question of is time continuous or is it divided into segments? You know, I mean, right. in this case, we're talking about panels of a comic book. Quantum. But the but the, the whole <laughs> thing about time. yeah is is time quantized is yeah. one of those discussions that you have at at two thirty in the morning in in a, in a college dorm room with with way too much beer and pot. Yeah. Right. There's too much. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Trust me, there is such a thing. It's contextual. I guess I had a question about uh, reprints. Um, when the comic book are reprinted in trade paperback form, did they come how do the characters experience that uh, subjectively? Wow. Yeah. Well, since they're experiencing the same thing over again for yeah. the first time, um, they they have. I mean, just like the, the Simpsons have no memory. Of right, course, yeah, no yeah. no characters in the Simpsons have any memory. And I think I think it's it's the true <laughs> it's true for is all for true? them. Except for, except maybe for Charlie. They have no memory, except when that's a joke, but when they have the memory. Oh, I had an elephant before. This happened before. We yeah. did this story before. Yeah, but you, ah, Simpson. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Could of Charlie what? the Purple, could Charlie the Purple Draft become conscious of being written? It would be painful, wouldn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, wow. I, for He's his only sake aware of being read, is what you're saying, but yeah. not of being written. Wow. Wow, that would be, if he takes LSD, he's in yeah. big trouble. And that's yeah. also the classic uh, Bugs Bunny comic book where he's fighting the uh, animator and it gets erased and yeah. just turned into yeah. other uh, I mean, uh, I mean, this animal. stuff has all been done. You know, it's just, it, it's, yeah. it ta- it's a certain twist on stuff that's, I think of the Truman Show. You yeah, know? yeah, uh, yeah. 
in a way, I thought of Flatlands. Wow. I mean, mm. when they're stacked up. And then, mm -hmm. and then you think, who's the guy that has the multiple universes where everything has already happened and is happening all the time, but it's all quantized, you know? Uh, Jesus. I'm not it? sure. Um, huh? Okay. Oh, uh, Dr. Dr. Manhattan? Yeah. Cool. The movie trailer looks so cool. Um, but yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, no, I mean, I mean, it's a, it's a classic comic book. I read it when it was. Um, uh, oh, I'm trying to remember. Uh, Stephen Barnes was the one who said, "You got to get this comic book. It is so good." So I started reading it from like issue issue two or three or so, and and so I, I read it back when it first came out, and I've loved it since forever. Um, and I, and and I really hope they don't fuck it up. But um, yeah, could Charlie be aware of being read? I, I mean, of being being written, being created, and that's my suspicion is that that the creation of a fictional character is so such an inchoate mess that that he would not be together enough to be aware at that at that point. The what? Wh where did his impulse? He's. A He's a he's a um, a zani. He's a I mean he's he's the zany character in Commedia dell'arte. That's his that's his role. That's what he does. That's what he was built to do. Well, even in reality, all actions are caused actions. What made you ask that question? Wow. You know, <laughs> <laughs> like yeah. like my thumbnail is a whole <laughs> series of galaxies that's inside. Right. <laughs> Yes. Good. But you did your you did the drinking <laughs> part. Do we do we need to repeat the questions for for the for the party? So so um, he's recommending that that um, in terms of breaking the fourth wall and that sort of thing, Grant Morrison's run on Animal Man, which I have I have not read, but I've heard good things about it. Yeah. And Mike Mike Badger's rude. Way up in the back. Be loud. Thursday next. The Thursday yeah. next yeah, novels. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. What are they? Somebody uh, tell me. The the author is Jasper Ford. Mm -hmm. um, oh, okay. And and this is this is a series of adventures of Thursday Next, who is an agent of the literary police. I think this is liter mm? juris fiction. Yes. Um, and this is this takes place in a world in which there is the, the line between fiction and reality is much is is is. It's different. It's blurrier, um, and and you can, for example, if you get a hold of of the of the original manuscript of Jane Eyre, you can actually change the you can actually change the experience, and it hap and it changes in every copy. Um, not to mention the fact that fictional characters and real characters can bop back and forth. Um, yeah, I actually played with that very self same idea in a story which I which I read I I, I wrote, and which. Which sat at realms of fantasy, realms of fantasy, for a year and a half, waiting for a response. During which time, the first of the Jasper Ford books came out, and thus, thus that story became nearly mm. unpublishable. But I did eventually sell it. Interesting, interesting. 
So Nick, what about what you did also this book with Kerouac yeah. and Lovecraft? Now was but now this book to me was all Carver, Carver syntax and right. and uh, Lovecraft. Well, everybody you know, else who's Lovecraftian does the Lovecraft uh, mm -hmm. voice right. and right. whatever tedious little plot they come up with. Right. And that's very that's you know after almost a century it gets very boring after a while. Well, I know you're not big into Lovecraft. I read your. No, uh, I'm very big into Lovecraft. You, your blog about the. Um, the Masters of American Literature, whatever that thing is, I thought was sort of. You have to understand. I, I do a lot of blogging. I don't remember anything <laughs> after about a week or so that I've blogged. You sure that was me? Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. okay. Yeah. I just get that a lot. People always come up to me and say, "Remember when you blogged about this?" And I always say, "No." <laughs> <laughs> I was so wasted. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> well, like the uh, what the Kerouac book was was that hmm. like Kerouac in. Lovecraft's universe. That's or right. Did it have, it Kerouac have is the narrator. Okay. As it's the it's the book between On the Road and Big Sur. With tentacles. Oh, it's Kerouac's it's book. Between, that's right. Between yes. On the Road and Big Sur, yes. which would mean what? It's around San Francisco, or it's, it's actually on the road in reverse. He starts off in Big Sur and goes to New York. Okay. Yeah. Road the on. Yes, exactly. Cool. All right. And uh, where did you? Are you a big Kerouac? Where did that come? I from? I was when I was a kid. I mean, that's pretty much you know what, what you end up doing. You either end up reading Robert Heinlein as a kid, or uh, or something else. And when I was eight years old, um, what happened was uh, I finished all the kids' books, so I got the adult library card, and I was looking in the adult section. And the first book I see is uh, Naked Lunch. <laughs> <laughs> and those are, those are two things Warped I like. I was eight years old. <laughs> so I go up to what could uh, be wrong with that? To the library, and I have the Naked Lunch, and they said, you know. You can't get that. That's uh, for, uh, for adults. I said, well, I've got my adult library card. She says, well, you know, that's <laughs> you not what the you need the adult adult library that's card right. for that one. And she said, well, you know, that's not what you think it is. And I said, well, we'll see about that. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and she was right, actually, now, as it turns out. Uh, now, I read, Naked, <laughs> I read Naked Lunch when I was 14, and it, it scarred me for life. So, <laughs> so that, uh, that, the, the decision was made at age eight when you, when you see that thing. And like any, any, many people here, I'm sure, had a, a book as a life-changing event at a certain time in childhood. And it's almost always something that is too much for you. Yes. But if you read something that, that's marketed for you and designed for you, it's not. It's satisfying, but it's not. Uh, it's been does not blow your mind. It's yeah. not designed to blow your mind. Yeah, because if you read yeah. something that is, if you read something that doesn't that doesn't change you at all, then it's not. It's not going to have the impact of something that 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 bends you exactly. However, yeah. how in in however small a way. Yeah. And but I was like science fiction and stuff, but I guess I was never satisfied with the, the voices I see in science fiction. That sort of limited third third person uh, type of thing. So I wanted to bring in other voices and. How would this science fiction story look, or horror story look, if it was written by somebody who was more interested in writing than, than in telling a story? Right. And that kind of thing. Right. So and there's but the difference between ongoing. you and me. Because yes. mm -hmm. I, I actually, I use, um, I had an interesting <laughs> argument with somebody over whether there is such a thing as transparent prose. And hmm. I, 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 do believe in, I do believe there is such a thing as transparent prose. And I, I tend not to be much of a stylist, although I have written a few stories with distinctive voices. But generally, I don't pay a lot of attention to the voice. I don't, I don't try to make sure that a, that a particular story has a particular voice. I mean, I make sure that an individual character has a voice. Oh, sure. mm -hmm. And the, view, the viewpoint character, whether the story is in first person or third, will reflect the character's point of view. So but what are you not paying attention to? I'm not... Um, I'm I'm not struggling to find the most beautiful expression, the most uh, the, the most artistic or musical um, expression of of the character's emotion or the description of the scene. I just try to paint the picture in the reader's mind with sufficient descriptive with, with sufficient descriptive stuff that the reader can see what I'm trying to say or some approximation of it, and then move on from there. 
because because what I'm really interested in is is the I- the ideas um, and and often often I, I come up with a setting first of all mm-hmm. a, a setting or or the ending of the story and then everything else is 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 based around that I very rarely will say I want to write a story in the style of you know right. X or in a, or in a style mm-hmm. yeah, yeah yeah I don't think I don't I mean, think it's the difference between let's say a visual orientation and a, and a oral one mm-hmm. like I when I was teaching. Uh, writing, I used to uh, spend two hours talking about two sentences. She was a blonde, a blonde who could make a bush- bishop put a foot through a stained glass window. Now, without knowing anything other than she's a blonde, almost every one of you has the same exact idea of what this blonde looks like. What color is the blonde's dress? Blonde. No, no, what color is the blonde's dress? Red. Red. <laughs> uh, how long is her hair? And does it go over one shoulder, sort of wavy? Mm-hmm. Yes. So, it, the, so the picture is not painted in the words, but it, it triggers something consciously via the, via the connection. It also tells you things about the speaker. Is that speaker very religious and, and humble? No, you know. And that's sort of what two sentences that d- does double, triple, quadruple duty mm-hmm. as far as telling you about the reader, uh, the, the speaker, the, the subject, their relationship, you know, and that kind of thing, just in two sentences without saying, and there I was so nervous when this woman walked in because she's so cute with her red dress and blonde hair, you know, all that kind of wow. thing. Wow. Yeah, no. Yeah. I, that's the power of cliche. Yeah. I mean, cliches have right. enormous power. Well, it doesn't activate. It activates a cliche without without traffic in the in the cliche. The cliche is in our heads, and it, and it triggers it without saying red dress, that kind of thing. In yeah, fact, she's exactly. actually not wearing a red dress. And that is why yes. cliches are so dangerous because they will they will seize control of the narrative and run with it. If you d- if if you get too close, they will take over. Yeah, what you want to do is you want to make use of the cliche in right. the car- in the in the reader's head mm-hmm. rather than. Let the cliche be in your head. Be in your yeah, head. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I don't know about that. Uh, <laughs> it seems to me like, like, uh, for example, in your story, mm-hmm. what you exactly wanted to do was to take all the cliched, uh, you know, the guy putting uh, fixing the engine with a sledgehammer, mm-hmm. take all the cliches of comic books, and and make the cliches themselves what the story that make them the material that the story's made out mm-hmm. of. So. Yeah. I don't. Th- I think the distinctions about it being the reader's head or the, or or all that is kind of. I don't know. It seems to well, me like well, part that of that why the why the mallet is funny is because we know about the mallet already. Yeah. Right. So that's the, just that's as you said, in your story, you're drawing on a huge experience that people, which everybody has seen comics, you mm-hmm. know, has that whole kind of thing. And and like in Nick's story, now this one is for a more specialized audience. Mm-hmm. But if you're talking about the the blonde and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. You've got all the Mickey Spillane and Rex Stout covers to that yes. people have seen. Right. You know, yeah, so yeah. you're the burly you're detective. You're yeah. drawing on a whole. There's a you know Elliot used to say that, and I agree that literature is not really made out of life. It's made out of other literature, and that's oh, sure. that's what we draw on. You know, when we're uh, this is what we talk about when we talk about literature. Yeah, yeah this is what we talk about when we talk about literature. Exactly. So I don't know. It just made me feel. Uh, I really, I really liked both those stories. I liked the way they. Um, well, they were ambitious. You know, I, I you know, mm-hmm. that's an ambitious. Uh, that's an ambitious enterprise, and 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 like I say, it's it's not one that's gonna uh, that a lot of people are gonna get. Yeah. You know. <laughs> well, you know, you can't uh, limit yourself to people's synoptic facilities, because I mean, most hard really? S, most hard SF people aren't gonna get unless they read hard SF. And they'll have learned about science or learned about things in their classwork and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So if you if you want to limit things to what people know, ge- as generations go by, they'll know less and less. Right. Right. One way you find out about things is about reading about them in a book and say, what is this all about? Let me look it up, or let me keep it in my brain and find out what it means twenty years later. So there's a there's a 
I think that's a fraught sort of position to say, well, people won't know this, so I'm not going to put it in. Yeah. And and yeah. you can I mean you can write, you can have yeah. different postures. Um, you look at something like Moten God's Eye, which mm -hmm. was deliberately written to be accessible. It, it was written to be a hard SF book that would be accessible sure. to the non-hard SF mm -hmm. reader, and it became not only successful um, and successful with non-SF readers. I mean, it actually did what it set out to do. It was also exceptionally memorable. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people. I mean, that that book came out. 30, 40 years ago, a sure. long time ago. And most <coughs> people that read it still remember it. It's got some great ideas in it. And I think the way that it was written in order to be accessible, I think made it more memorable, even to people that already had that hard SF background. Oh, absolutely, but uh, I mean, there's also the opposite of that. Like say, uh, two recent horror novels, or relatively recent over the past 10 years or so, that are much more popular than the average horror novel, is House of Leaves by Daniel Lewski, which involves uh, turning, going up to the mirror and turning the book upside down at certain points and reading footnotes and footnotes, and uh, Sharp Teeth, which is uh, an epic poem. You now got me on both of them. Yeah. Now, th these have both been pretty popular over the past couple of years, they're far more popular than the usual paperback put out by, say, Dorchester Publications. Yeah, they're both quite recent. Yes. Well, one's 2001 was last year. Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, are they genre? Are these? Excuse me for my. You have the advantage of me. Are, <laughs> these, are these genre books? Are these speculative fiction? Well, horror is a different kind of genre than uh, than that. It's a tonal genre, so it can it can appear anywhere. Right. I mean, it certainly was read both by genre people and non-genre people. Right. Yeah. I think I I would I would almost class House of Blue Leaves as House of Leaves House of Leaves yeah. as <laughs> a experimental book. Mm -hmm with horrific concepts yes. rather than a horror book written in experimental fashion. What's that? I'm not sure about I that, don't actually. Know. I don't know. Yeah. Or look at like my job at Viz. Um, doing, uh, Viz is a publisher of manga. And if you walked into a uh, bookstore 15 years ago saying, well, we got these comic books, see? Uh, they're in black and white, no superheroes. They're for girls. Um, they're from another language. We put them, we're going to print them backwards, too. <laughs> what do <laughs> yeah, you think? Yeah, you have to open them at the back. <laughs> you know, <laughs> people would yeah. go, uh, and not buy it. But How now, many do you want? 15 years later, um, it's a bigger section than SF section. You know, just, mm -hmm. and that's probably Definitely. a fad to a certain extent. Yeah. But it also has been around for a decade now, and it's really built a, a my, wide my audience. So you can't really predict based on past performance what's going to succeed and what's not going to succeed. There are plenty of accessible novels that fail and plenty of weirdo novels that succeed. And of course, plenty of the opposite of all, both of those as well. Yeah. My first exposure to uh, House of Leaves was when XKCD skewered it a couple of uh, weeks yes, ago. Yes, yes. <laughs> I, mean, I, I get all of my news from webcomics <laughs> these days. It's kind of scary. Huh. Yeah. XKCD? Uh, I, I cannot, it, you have to look at it. I, I cannot it's a comic, it's very visual, words. you can only describe yeah. it. One stick figure says. Yeah. yeah. Well, this particular XKCD is even, is even more so. Yeah. It's All a right. stick figure comic for you. Yes. In the back, be real loud. Say it louder. He said he's a bastard engineer with no literary training. Oh. Well is that I the could, end of your comment? Okay, thank you. We can tell that. <laughs> <laughs> we knew that. <laughs> Don't try this at home, kids. Mike, you talked about, you were asking David about style. Well, style is investigative fiction, and you're not focused on fiction that's actually involved story and story. Nixon, you were talking earlier about covers. So covers, you wouldn't have them in other books. And I'm just curious if there's, if that's the case here, and you're talking about some kind of innovation in style, is that also just a conflict of that external editor coming in? Ah. Uh. 
that's the question that'll launch a thousand theses in the next in the next ten years. Yeah, that's yeah. For how sure. much uh, of Carver's style is Carver, yeah. and how much is the editor's? How much yeah. was Leach? And of course, this is also uh, an unusual circumstance uh, for someone to be edited so heavily and then become so prominent and so influential as Carver was after being edited by Leach, starting what they call dirty realism or minimalism. But we have the. It's not that. Uh, it's not unheard of. This yeah. was uh, uh, Thomas Wolfe uh, would not be a well-known oh, novelist sure. if it hadn't been for Maxwell yeah. Perkins, who cut a third of his books. Absolutely, and uh, but of course between. Thomas Wolfe and Raymond Carver, we got about uh, was it 40 years or so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, of sort of, so our examples are from the early 20th century and the, and the later part of the 20th century, and two prominent ones. And we, don't, we, can't, we can't possibly know who was influenced by what. You know, uh, there are rumors going around that Stephen King's half of his books are written by Tabitha King, the bad half. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or the good half, depending on whether you think about Tabitha King. You know. So yeah. it's hard to say what causes what, because we only see the product. Right, we only but see the, the result. But again, yeah. the product is what matters. I think. What do you work? Do you have stock in Bertelsmann or something? Uh, no, <laughs> I, just, I think no. I, but I think I think that the text itself. Is, oh, the text. Is okay, that's different than the product. It doesn't too, matter. So. <laughs> you know, in the long run, it doesn't matter uh, what uh, you know to, what Lish did to Carver. Oh, sure, what yeah. matters is that you have these the jewel-like the stories yeah. that changed the way everybody wrote stories. Yeah. Just about they mm-hmm. changed. I think they changed short fiction as much as Salinger's nine stories did. I mm-hmm. think mm-hmm. they. They just sort of. Uh, I, I remember reading a uh, essay about jazz once when they uh, somebody talked about what they call a tonal innovator, you know, and like after Miles Davis, it changed it how everybody sounded, and I think Bob Dylan did that to um, to sort of folk rock, and I think that Carver Shit did that to uh, Carver and Lish or somebody sure, yeah. did that to mm-hmm. short fiction. It's really hard not to write like that these yeah. days. Yeah. Well, well it's, it's changing now slowly. But it is. It now. is changing, but we're never going to have. A phenom- we're never going to have anything quite like that again because editors are not being given the leeway no, to don't. edit anymore. Way to back. Forty-three point five percent. How much is it acceptable to? Ed- the question <laughs> is, how much is it acceptable for an editor to cut? And and well, the Edi- thing is. When you work with an editor who actually is who actually does edit your stuff, and and most of the time, Rarely when I sell when I sell a story, it's either it's either a rejection or a sale. But every once in a while, I get an editor to come back and say, you know, this would be better if. And generally, they will suggest something that I wouldn't have thought of. Not necessarily a cut. As a matter of fact, when I have an editor who says, you know, this isn't quite there yet, I wish it would do X, they almost inevitably ask for more. And occasionally I've had stories which I cut down in order to fit under a, pub- under a publication stated word limit, and they asked me for more information. And so I put it all back and, and, then, and, then, and then sold it. But I couldn't, I couldn't have sent it to them if it was over length because they would have rejected it out of hand. Yeah. It's, a funny, it's a funny business. What uh, do you think, Nick? I've done some editorial work. Uh, I had a magazine, Clark's World, when there's the uh, anthology outside, and we're working on an anthology now with Dell and Datlow called Haunted Legends. And we're sort of uh, pretty uh, intense editors. Uh, I guess my editing hero is actually Captain Lou Albano, the pro wrestling manager. Uh, from the 70s and 80s, and Captain Lee would always say, you know, I can make any man a champion. Just put the brass knuckles in the trunks, or have the fake cast, or or cheat, or, you know, throw the fireball, or get the chairs, and that kind of thing. You can make any man a champion if you have, if Captain Lee Obama was his manager. And I feel the sort of same way. Um, to an extent, there's, you know, there's a limit of, of the time I want to spend on a story, but almost every cultural story had substantial editing of the, of the 28 I bought before quitting. And uh, even uh, with Haunted Legends, we've you know we've got stories from Kit Reed and and, and Joe Lanzo and every and everyone went back for at least uh, a few hits. 
of uh, get rid of this paragraph, can we make this first person, uh, we don't like the name Francesca, that kind of thing. So, well. so it's not raw percentage. Also the question of you know, what are you writing? Like if you're writing for a trade magazine about upholstery, your job is to get, have some certain information about upholstery and it gets rewritten no matter what. And you don't care because you get 50 cents a word that's about upholstery. Um, for short fiction, it's probably very different because that's very personal uh, form. No one's writing short fiction uh, because of the massive amounts of money it brings in. Yeah. And even to a certain extent, novels is also the same way. You know, there's also a, and and when um, I have you know when I have an editor who who gets who really gets into the gets into the nitty nitty gritty and and changes individual words and phrases, generally unless it unless it actually like changes the meaning. Or 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 takes the story in a direction very different from the one that I, even if that is totally not the way I would have put it, I go ahead and let them go because the thing is is that the the voice of a publication is the editor's voice, which is exercised by selection most of the time. But there are some editors who like to impose a bit of a house style, not nearly as as thoroughly as was done in the 30s. But there there are some editors who who feel that they want to have their their magazine or their website have a certain amount of house style. And in that case, I'm willing to go along with changes that will that will make it make the story have a slightly different voice than the original voice that I'd written. You know, no, that's not the way I would have done it. But okay, yeah, sure, I'll let I'll let that happen. But I very rarely have editors just cut things. Um, where cuts are, where cuts have been required, usually they will ask me to do that. Well, and also I think you're uh, that those days are gone when mm -hmm. when you had when editors in New York publishing companies actually knew how to line edit. I don't think that many people actually even know how to do it anymore. Yeah, no, that it. that job is done by copy yeah. editors now. Yeah, the, the unsung the unsung heroes of the genres. Yeah. Yeah. It comes in and it goes to a copy editor. I do quite a bit of line. You, back to your question of how much is acceptable. Uh, that depends on the author. I think the editor is always, from my point of view, the editor is always working for the author. And and your job is to be as transparent as possible and to change as little as possible, but to make the story what the story wants to be. And in a sense, th that's the same thing the author's doing. Once, well, if you start writing a story, you have this idea what the story is, but by the time you get two-thirds of the way through your first draft, it has made its own decisions. And so you have to kind of go along with uh, you know, it begins to to reduce your field of play. So yeah, yeah. The the story teaches you how to write it. So yeah, right. yeah. And, and and it sounds it sounds dorky, but it really does work that way. Yeah. Yeah. Anybody else? We've scared them off. Nothing else yeah. about. Well, I'm. Let me we solved all the problems. Great. Yeah. No, there's a couple other things I want to talk about. Oh, well, okay. this story also. <laughs> Was a lot about physics. This is the debate in physics about is the world real or not, and you know, and you can go back to that. Oh, I thought we just had a no Truman Wasn't Show. No, what? no, the world is not real. That's right. Yeah. God, God does not yeah. exist. Yeah. By two falls out of three. Well, I think also in a sense you could call it a story about creationism. You know, you could do a whole variation on that mm. <laughs> where uh, you know that's uh, your who are you, Sarah Palin? That's criticism. That's creationism, man. We don't want to hear that <laughs> crap. You know. Well, but the thing is, is that these characters do live in a created world. Um, well, I, and, and how Jay, do we know we don't? Yeah, and Jay Lake, Jay Lake has uh, has written you know a whole a whole two two books now now going to be a trilogy about a world in which. There is no question that it's a created world. You look up in the sky and you see the clockwork. You see the gears turning. This is a world that is literally a clockwork world driven by a spring at the center of the earth. Oh, he had a name for it. It's called Clock Punk or something. What, what yeah, was it? Clock Jay punk. Was clock no, punk. It's, that's not it. It's he calls it Clock Punk. Yeah. Armature. Armature? 
Somebody. Well, yeah, okay. And the thing yeah, is, is that in this names. in this yeah. book, um, the world is obviously created, and yet there is no creator. There is there is no sign of a creator, and and so what they have is fundamentally the flip. What the characters in this book have is fundamentally the flip side of our problem, which is which is they they can see that the world is created, but they know there is no creator. We can we cannot tell whether or not the world is created, and and we must and and some some infer the existence of a creator, and some do not. Um, and so I think I think Charlie and his and his animal and and his happy happy colorful animal buddies um, have the same problem uh, writ small, in that they no they cannot tell whether or not they are created. Charlie knows, and and you, you know but he doesn't see things he doesn't see he doesn't hear things he just knows stuff. And I think that's how most that's how most of us are. I, maybe even all of us are. Mm -hmm. Is we for the things that cannot be determined through the evidence of our senses, even as, amp as amplified by instruments, there are things that we just know. And some of us just know that the world is created, and some of us just know that it was not. And sometimes people even change their minds. But it's, it's an irrational decision, I think, just like the question of which editor to use, five versus Emax. It's just, you just know. It's a different question, but I agree the answer is the same. <laughs> yeah. Oh really? I, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. In in the, in the She-Hulk comic itself, when she appears in other comics, oh. she she, uh, she she's played differently. But in the right, right. Yeah. So so, and this is one of the problems that it has to be kind of funneled off because, uh, like you say about the Simpsons, it's it's very bad for the story. It's sort of one of those things that's very hard to sustain. And I wondered if you if you could think of, of, of ways of sustaining something like this beyond the short story. Um, it is. I, I mean, meta. Is yeah. kind of the, the whole the whole thing about about meta. It's very it's a very twenty first century in the you know, turn of the twentieth twenty first century kind of thing. To, to, no, to be, to be meta. wrong. That's wrong. not true. Don wrong. Quixote, the first modern novel. Right. Wow. You know, part two begins with with Don Quixote yeah. walking up from reading part one and saying, "Wow, I've got to really stop myself for this sequel." I and everyone corrected. else read has read part one too, except for one guy who's read the pirated version of part two, which was wrong, and people make fun of him. <laughs> I said, so correct. the novel begins. Uh, but okay, well, but 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 the whole yeah. So so well, yeah, I mean, so apparently, apparently, we have we have an example of, of something yeah. of a way to to sustain meta over a length that's greater than a short story. It's it's in all the it's it's all through Alice in Wonderland. Yeah. It's all through the Iliad has a metafiction in it. The Shield of Achilles, uh, you know, has the shield is made to produce the the first nine books or the first eleven books of the Iliad. So as the as shield of plot. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So the moment you can't kill me, I'm the protagonist. Yeah. So the moment you start telling a story, you, you actually you are you are engaging in story in a way that suggests a meta plot. You know. Yeah. How but does the story begin? Once upon a time. How do you know that? Well, you've heard stories of that. You know. That's right. But I think it is true that that you ha that it has to be handled very carefully. You know. But everything like everything else, be, in yeah, yeah, like everything else. These things yeah. must they be. You got to do it good, not poorly. Yes, correct. Uh, yeah, I agree. Yeah. <laughs> no, I definitely. Uh, you know, it, you. I guess the question is, well, I mean, the, the, qu the examples given were uh, sort of long-term, you know, 20 years of The Simpsons, a comic book can last indefinitely, uh, while a novel is sort of a ultimately discrete thing, you know. We won't hope. Sorry, These yeah, days? Yeah. Not so much. I know, that's horrible, but... Uh, <laughs> History yeah. as well. I mean, the same thing stylistically, right? Is that in both of those cases, the way people first think of it is a, is a one-to-one 
Yeah, but see, I think they're very different because, like, in in uh, 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 what am I trying to say? Yeah, <laughs> I, uh, yeah. Don't give up, Terry. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think that's happened a lot new too. Tropes right? no, no, new tropes for old. New tropes for old. Yeah. yeah. I think it gets Yeah. Yeah. I think Nix also falls into it. There's another um category of story sort of wh which I don't know if it's a sort of a subject a type of science fiction that is fairly I don't know how recent it is, but where there's this science fictional thing that ha in science fiction something weird happens and either people respond to it and do and there's a lot of action or they act like it doesn't no big deal. Yeah. You know. Well, one of the, I mean, so <laughs> your story, yeah. in a sense, is it's like Kafka. You know, yeah. here they come. Oh God. You okay. know. <laughs> it's not. Yeah. That's it's not the story. It's right. not clear to me, anyway, mm -hmm. in in Nick's story, mm -hmm. whether these characters have read Lovecraft, whether whether they whether they right. are aware that that what they are seeing is something that is that that, that thousands oh, you know, sure. thousands of people I've in the 20th about, century yeah. have read about. Yeah. You know, I I don't think they may. That's a peculiar. That's also an interesting challenge. It comes up a lot because whenever Lovecraft as a character shows up, then you know what the plot is. Oh, everything's real. Oh, yeah. yeah. Although I did write one story about Lovecraft where he, the, the plot was just he had a bad dream about dancing to Negro music, and he didn't like that. Yeah. It was a nightmare he had. Um, Very strange. But the, I think the best version of that was The Mind Parasites by Colin Wilson, in which the character hadn't heard of Lovecraft, but everybody else had. And he's like, who? What? Lovecraft? I'm a professor. I don't, I don't read this crap. Oh, it's real. Oh, he had to call somebody at the British Museum and he said, have you heard of this H.P. Lovecraft? And that was sort of an interesting way to handle it. Yeah. This is Colin Wilson. Uh, Colin Wilson's The Mind Parasites. Yeah, it's one of his most famous novels. Yeah. Really? It was yeah. made into a god-awful movie. But, huh. um, I, I, and, and, you know, and this is a big, uh, getting back to comic books, um, this is a big issue in comic books. People in comic books don't read comic books. Um, as a matter of fact, most comic book, uni most comic book universes, Our there are no, comics, there yeah. are no comic books. And, and, and every once in a while, you do get. Um, I, I'll have to go back to Watchmen. The in in Watchmen, Watchmen takes place in a universe with real superheroes. What do the people in this universe read? Pirate comics. <laughs> yeah. Right. Somebody in the back. Well, I, mean, I guess in the in the big scheme of things, I don't have an opinion on whether the characters know or not. I didn't even think about it. Uh, but uh, <coughs> is Lovecraft anything more than a footnote in history right now? You know, yeah. If that <laughs> exactly, I, yeah. I, well, I, I, have, I have a story. Um, I have a story which uh, I think is in this collection about um, a guy who makes a bad decision. Um, in he's he's a spa he's a space traveler. He works in outer space. Um, he, he's he's the he's the IT guy on on board on board a uh, on board a scientific expedition. So he's made many bad decisions. Yeah, he's yeah. made many <laughs> bad decisions. And and 
he if he finds himself in a position to to you know make a decision which will either save or doom the expedition and he makes a bad decision because he's a science fiction fan and and he's and he says this is you know this is just like that episode of Star Trek and he's totally wrong yeah, yeah. and at one point later on one of the other characters says to him this is science not science fiction um and it's a real tough balancing act to write that sort of thing into a story because it's easy to either pander to your audience or to be perceived as pandering sure. to your audience. Yeah, it's a tough. It's a it's a very right. tough line. I guess to there was walk. a similar conversation about the sparrow. Uh, this book, the sparrow, several mm-hmm. years ago, and uh, it's about hugely popular Jesuits uh, who uh, Jesuits in who are in Spain. first contact. <laughs> and the people said, "Well, didn't they read any science fiction? Don't they know how dangerous it is to just hop onto a planet and say hello?" <laughs> and of course, the the question is one: No, they haven't. But two. They're, they're Catholics. They, have, they actually have 500 years of Jesuits showing up in little islands and saying, hey, how's it going? And being killed or eaten or whatnot. And they don't care because they have a different set of point, they have a different point of view than yeah, different set of priorities. A, a science fiction. Yeah. I mean, in some ways, people talk about this all the time. They say, uh, when cloning was a big deal a couple of years ago uh, in the legislature, people were sort of complaining, well, how come they don't bring the science fiction writers to go talk to them about cloning? We've thought about this for years. But you know what? You're, you're, you're entertainers. Yeah. I mean, imagine if you're a uh, there's a crime. Quick, get me a mystery novelist. You yeah. know, <laughs> no one's thinking about that. Yeah, uh, I mean, science fiction writers. I need a dick. Science fiction writers are not futurists. Yeah. Did anybody read the Sparrow? I mean, the Sparrow was not considered science. It was sort of speculative fiction. Did you like it? Oh yeah. yeah. I I had such a reaction to it because uh, somebody gave me that book. Such a reaction. I, uh, of, That's both intense and non noncommittal. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Such a, I had such as what I meant to say is I had such a strong reaction to it. In what direction? <laughs> it's like the time my grandmother uh, calls me up and says, you know, I wrote this poem about school shooting. I said, well, for or against, and she just hangs up on me. I don't know what do you mean. <laughs> I've got a cause, obscenity. <laughs> I'm for it. So no, did you I like d- the book. No, I hate oh, yeah. it. I, I, it. It occurred to me that this person had never ever read a science fiction book, and they thought. Uh, who needs to? And so they write this thing, and they uh, basically you have parallel evolution. Nobody even wonders why this happened. You because know, they're like Jesuits, they don't no. care. <laughs> it's not no. that they. It's not that they are well, unable did you feel to. That, uh, it's your just that they don't was want stomped to. upon as a science fiction writer. This no, no, no. I just felt like no. It wasn't my territory. I just felt like if somebody had, if somebody, if they're going to write uh, science fiction, they should pay a little more attention to the feel that there are that it has. Uh, Parameters and values and things that you you know. I that think you need I think there are, there are plenty of books there are plenty of books that make that mistake, but I don't think the Sparrow was one of them. Um, yeah. When when she, it's not that she hadn't read science fiction. It's it's that she that she she had her own story that she wanted to tell. And admittedly, she wasn't as much of a fan as some, but she definitely had read in the genre in in a way that, uh, for example, um, Oryx and Crake. Um, yeah, just kind of just kind of steps on science fiction without even realizing it. Right, this or is a common problem for newcomers. People uh, who write outside of science fiction uh, really annoy science fiction writers. I, I don't care one way or the other, honestly. Well, uh, but a lot of people get upset about it for some reason. Well, you know, I mean, there are plenty of bad books to get upset about, both inside genres and outside genres. If I was upset about every bad book, I'd never get anything else done. I barely get anything else done as it is because I'm upset about bad books constantly. <laughs> I, I don't know. Yeah, he just he just sits around in his basement all day. <laughs> so what is wrong in the book? Yeah. I mean, I felt the same way. Did people read uh, the Plot Against America, the Philip Roth? Um, Speaking of which, yes, mm-hmm. uh, you know, alternate history, yeah. which I thought was actually a wonderful book, a, a really good book about uh, you know what he writes about, yeah. which is being a Jewish kid during the Depression mm-hmm. in Trenton and all that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. But he. It, it, I, I read some interviews with Roth later, and Roth had no idea that anybody had ever done this <laughs> before. He thought, yeah. 
<laughs> well, maybe that's what it was. Well, now this is, this was before Michael, but uh, yeah. yeah, but at least you know. I mean, you got to handle Michael uh, Chabon is very you know he Why they right pays his dues to science fiction. <laughs> I don't care if they pay their dues to science fiction. It's just I what think I felt like a little bit, Jerry. I just with the plot yeah. against America. I think Chabon has a lifetime membership. <laughs> the plot against America. The the if people know the book, it it was really a great book, but it had no ending. He didn't know how to resolve it. He didn't know that if you do that. It's like a time travel. If you're writing a time travel story, it has to have a paradox. If you're writing a a uh, alternate history, it has to resolve in a historical way in a new world. Uh, yeah, new. Yeah. One uh, of one of my of one of my instructors at Clarion said that the point the point of an alternate history for the reader is to find out the is to find out the twist point, and right. not the, and not the resolution of the nominal plot. Yeah. 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 Well, that's that's the fun of it. That's mm -hmm. for sure. In the back. Why what? Time travel? Yeah. I don't know. I, I don't, <laughs> no, I, I really don't. I try. I wrote a time travel novel a couple. I don't do a lot of time travel stuff, but I did. I wrote a time travel novel a couple of years ago. I had no interest in doing a paradox. I w I wanted to write about the far future and and what. Uh, you know, it was about ecology and environmentalism and what was going to happen in the future. I had no interest in all that kind of stuff. Yeah. But I just discovered writing the books that structurally somehow the book demanded some kind of, uh, that it, it's like a Jane Austen book. There has to be a wedding at the end. You know, yeah. it did not work. <laughs> yeah. There was I something about it that didn't work. As with the, as with the, the alternate history novel, and there's no point in writing an alternate history without uh, without thinking about in what way is this different from our history and exactly why is it different from our history and therefore the puzzle for the reader becomes in addition to reading the story for the plot and the characters you're also trying to figure out what is the twist point uh, in the same, I think in the same way, what is the point of writing a time travel novel as opposed to a novel that's set in another time? It's to play with the mechanism of going back and forth in time. And therefore, if you play with the mechanism of going back and forth in the time, you have to wonder what could go wrong. And the answer to the question, what could go wrong in a time travel book is, what's the paradox? Right. Although you can probably, I mean, at least conceivably address this by saying, fuck the paradoxes, I can do whatever the hell I want. Yeah. Hitler's going to win the Civil War, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Well, and the, ti <laughs> the time machine by H.G. Wells doesn't have a, right. doesn't have a paradox right. in yeah. it. It doesn't? Hmm? Does he? <laughs> no, what, I don't what's think. What's the paradox? What? Okay. There you got it. That's it. I'm not saying it's some. It's like the what I was trying to say about the alternate history. An alternate history. People read it for the cusp. Where did it change? What's the hinge of well, history? Well, people don't read Philip Ross for that. But the other the other thing they want to know is what does the world look like today? And that's what Roth left out. That if he had ever read an alternate history, he he'd know that you have to do. You have to contrast it. That's why when, uh, in Philip K. Dick, The Man on the High Castle, he wrote, what's that thing, The Grasshopper Dies? He wrote mm -hmm. a, a, there was a book Within interspersed the book, in yeah. there and that told the about the went, world yeah. we live in. You know, Oh, it's similar to, but not quite the same. Actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's yeah. work you got to do if you're writing science fiction. If you're writing speculative fiction, you're writing goddamn things. Well, you, you know, uh, I'm reminded of Liberace, and people always complain about Liberace, you know, such a... Uh, concentrating too much in your costumes and the showman and you're not doing cl proper classical music. He said, well, yeah, I just cry all the way to the bank. 
you know, I don't, I don't think most Philip Roth's uh, readers are thinking, but what happened uh, in the 1980s after Lindbergh became president? I think that's a concern of people who read science fiction and were trained to, to think of this in a certain way. Because well, thanks weird. a lot. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> we're just weird. Yes. Yeah. I think Lee had a question. You, you gave up? Okay. All right. We're not just... Uh, if people don't want to... If we don't want to <laughs> have any more questions, we'll just well, take our ball and go home. Maybe people have a question home. for our authors because they are only here for a little while. We're going to sign books in a minute. Maybe people have got actually serious questions rather than just sort of literary questions I've been throwing at them. <laughs> really, I, no, I'm, I'm telling the truth. How much money do you like make? for? No, no, no. <laughs> I, a couple of questions. Hundreds of dollars. Yeah, what's your new book on short stories? I don't think that's a serious question. What it's called? Uh, you might sleep. It's uh, dot 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 dot. And it comes out when? Uh, Novemberish. I mean, I don't only pay attention to this sort of thing, honestly, because it's a collection of short stories. You know, you can't concentrate. You can't spend too much effort on, on a collection of short stories. I like that, uh, don't you? <laughs> <do>? <laughs> you don't like that, David? Look, it's a whole what book with my name on it. Short stories. <laughs> 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 There's a new novella in it about uh, uh, the Greek experience. The Greek experience. That's right. Yes. Is there oh, a hanky for that? Wait a minute. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> As it turns out, you're wearing it. <laughs> one, one more question, yes. which I could ask out there, but I'll ask in here. Did you ever read Memory Babe? Do you know that great um, no. biography of Kerouac? I'm trying to think of the author's name. Do people know Memory Babe? Huge book about Kerouac. I'm a mayor of Kerouac, too. I, I'm mm. going to read your Kerouac book. Mm, I'm thanks. excited about it. Listen, guys, thanks for coming. Here, uh, Before you leave, uh, come back on the 9th of October. Isn't that right, Jacob? Yeah, the ninth is we're on the um, Litquake. Lit it it really disturbs me. I'm glad we got Litquake put us on the map. But the, why can't they call it what it is? It's not speculative fiction. You know, all fiction is speculative fiction. We do it science fiction be, and fantasy. But anyway, people will be here. We're going to have Lansdale. We're going to have Cage Baker, mm -hmm. and we're going to have Rudy Rucker. Uh, and also, I thought a lot about Rudy in your story, because Rudy likes to ask big questions with silly characters. Yeah. That's one of his... only thing missing was the penis that, it, that detaches from the body and runs around. That's yeah. a, a common trope in Rudy Rucker stories for some reason. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so that's... <laughs> Rudy likes to do that. That's either his great strength or his great weakness. So anyway, Sorry. everybody should come on the 9th. <laughs> and on the 18th, uh, we've, have a lo we've long planned to have uh, Cecilia Holland, who's America's foremost historical fiction writer, I think, and also Kim Stanley Robinson, who's just finishing a new novel about Galileo. And from New York City, we're going to have Barry Malsberg, who's going to come out here and shake the finger of scorn at us all. Yes. So uh, we'll see you then. All right. So let's get some books Thank in you. and have a beer. Okay. Thank you for coming. Thank you. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. <laughs>